This past August, we began Phaseology, which is a sermon series, an extended sermon series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in that first sermon of this series back in early August, I mentioned, and we all know this, that the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital to the life of a believer. And because of this, because the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital to the life and faith of a believer, this sermon series is and has and will touch upon a wide variety, a wide range of scriptures and topics. Last week, we transitioned into the third movement of phaseology, and we did so by thinking and hearing about the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And so this third movement of phaseology is all about how the Holy Spirit works in the church and in the lives of individuals. Last week, we, we talked about the church as God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we talked about the church as the new spiritual temple in which believers in Jesus are bricks in the wall, bound together by the mortar of the Holy Spirit. We, we talked about the church being the Babelic kill switch that undoes our Babelic impulse to build life around the self and leads to scattering. Rather, the church, because of the Holy Spirit, his work applying Jesus to us brings us together. The question, I think, that is, is easily asked and, and naturally asked is, okay, if we are to have a high view of the church because the church is God's people gathered in Jesus through the Spirit, the question is, what does that thing look like? Are there marks of a church that should be found in the church in 2019 because they are found in Scripture, or do we just get to make things up as we go along? Scripture does indeed give us marks. You're not surprised to hear me say that, I'm sure. Scripture does give us marks. It gives us characteristics of the church, of what God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Spirit ought to look like. In fact, we heard four of those marks just this morning from a reading of Acts chapter 2. There in Acts chapter 2, we have the birth of the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And in that same chapter, we have a brief listing of four marks, four characteristics that Anglican pastor John Stott considers to be evidence of or evidence for a spirit-filled church. The church, then, is the Babelic kill switch because gathered together around Jesus through the Holy Spirit, individuals are brought together under God's authority proclaimed in Scripture. Individuals are brought together by the Spirit into the fellowship, and individuals are brought together, gathered into a people for the purpose of worship. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack these different characteristics. But for today, we're going to take a look at this idea of being the fellowship. The church, God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Spirit, is devoted to the fellowship. If you have your Bibles, we'll begin this morning in Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to pick up at verse 41. Acts chapter 2 tells a pretty well-known story within church circles, a the, the day of Pentecost is that day where 
120 of Jesus' followers were locked in an upper room. Jesus had ascended. He had gone and returned to the right hand of the Father, promising to send the gift of the Holy Spirit. The day dawns on that day of Pentecost. 120 disciples, followers of Jesus, are in an upper room together praying, we can assume, I believe, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. As the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, Scripture tells us, St. Luke tells us, writing in Acts chapter 2, that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak the glories and the excellencies of God in languages that were human languages that they had not learned. They went out into the temple precincts of the city of Jerusalem, proclaimed the glory of God in these unlearned human languages. Peter is the spokesman of the church on that day. He preaches what we could perhaps call the first church sermon. He calls many to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ to receive the Holy Spirit themselves. And this is how St. Luke summarizes that entire day of events. Luke, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, St. Luke writes, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. The day began with 120 disciples of Christ. The day comes to an end with 3,120 disciples of Christ. And then Luke tells us how they organized life. Luke tells us a mark of this spirit-filled church. It's devotion, devotion to several items. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In their book, Faith for Exiles, authors David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock state that the church can help fill a massive gap in our society. The desire to be loved, to be acknowledged for more than what we produce, to be known. And Kinnaman and Matlock can say this because God's gathered people in Jesus through the Spirit is devoted to the fellowship. But what is the fellowship? Let's take a look at this word fellowship and let's understand that while it is, the word fellowship is the best English translation for the Greek word koinonia, it doesn't quite capture the totality of what that Greek word means. Koinonia is a close association involving mutual interest and sharing. There's a commonness to koinonia. Koinonia is also an attitude of goodwill that manifests in an interest in a close relationship. There's, there's a commonness in a faith, and there's a commonness in a relationship, and there's a commonness in life. Koinonia is quite simply participation. And so when we say that the earliest church was marked by a devotion to the fellowship, to koinonia, it is to say that the members of the earliest church, they had things in common— Faith in Jesus, life together, and the building of relationship. That's koinonia. That's fellowship. So the first common thing was faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Fellowship among believers in Jesus is fundamentally unity in, unity through, unity by, and unity around Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that is true regardless of ethnicity, genealogy, place of birth, economic status, or any other grounds that people use to justify various forms of segregation. A fellowship in Jesus' church 
and God's people gathered around Christ in the Spirit, we're all uh, recipients of the same gift. We're all gathered around the same giver of the gift. We're all recipients of grace. And so it is that this fellowship is based solely upon the grace that is received through Jesus and faith in Jesus. In his letter to the church, churches in Galatia, St. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Foundational to the fellowship is common faith, common reception of grace. We are brought into the church, in the words of Leslie Newbegin. We are incorporated into Christ by hearing and believing the gospel. And folks, this gathering is supernatural. Believers are gathered into the church by the Holy Spirit. It is God who does the gathering of people around Jesus. He does this through the work of the Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Jesus, in fact, once commented to a rabbi that in order for that rabbi or for anyone to have life with God, one must be born again or born from above. And so we are incorporated into the fellowship in Jesus, and we are incorporated by receiving and abiding in the Holy Spirit, again, as Leslie Newbigin says. So believing in Jesus, receiving a baptism necessarily means then that a person is brought into the church. On that day of Pentecost, about 3,000 people believed in Jesus and were baptized, gathered into the church. So while salvation is individual, which is to say that a person believes in Jesus and receives salvation from Jesus for him or herself, salvation is never individualized. It is never apart from the church. As we considered God's great work of gathering last week, we recognize that the church is God's gathered people in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The coming into the people of God is the result of being adopted to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit. That's where fellowship finds its root Common faith, common belief, common reception of grace. Being brought into harmony with one another because fundamentally we are first brought into harmony with God in Jesus through the Spirit. And this is reflected in our, our documents that founded the Anglican tradition. Article 19 of the 39 Articles of Faith and Religion reads in part, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in, in the which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance. That word congregation reflects koinonia because it reflects fellowship. People gathered together around Jesus in the spirit with a purpose. This is one aspect of how the church then, God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, functions as that Babelic kill switch. Common faith, common life, common relationship marked by love has a way of undoing our individualistic impulse to form life around the self. The members of the earliest church had things in common. They participated in life together. They developed close relationships marked by love. 
They cared for one another, and they shared with one another. They were willing to go without so that others could have, even to the point of selling their own material possessions. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If the foundation of the fellowship of koinonia is common reception of grace in Jesus, the heart of koinonia is agape, it's love, love for one another. On the night of his betrayal and arrest, the, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He served them the supper of his broken body and blood of the new covenant, and then he says to them, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And what we see then in the caring and the sharing, the koinonia of Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47, is the intentional living out of Jesus' commandment for agape. Agape is love with deep respect that is full of thoughtfulness and concern for the object of love, and it is always demonstrating itself. It always reveals itself. It always shows itself. Jesus showed his agape, his love, by dying upon the cross, and Jesus calls all who would follow him to show their love for him and for brothers and sisters by dying to self, by giving up stuff so that others might have. Agape has the willingness to go without so that others might go with. Agape has the desire to be with those who are agaped. I made that up. You can use it. <laughs> agape has the desire for fellowship. Agape has the desire for togetherness in worship and in ministry in both formal and informal settings. Agape builds Koinonia builds fellowship because it builds commonness. The fellowship is about common faith and about common life and about common relationship. It's, we're all in this together, having received grace from God in Jesus Christ, called to build our lives together around love, around agape. And folks, agape, love, comes from the Holy Spirit. The natural impulse of humanity is to build life around the self, under the self's authority, and on the self's own terms. That's what I've called the Babelic impulse, to stand up and say, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Thank you, Martin. I know that you have that memorized. That's the Babelic impulse, and that impulse, our attempts to form even some kind of societal unit, is infected with the Babelic impulse, which can only end in scattering. What this tells us is simply this, to be devoted to the fellowship of the congregation, to love one another as God would have us love, we need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so the church, God's people, gathered around Jesus through the Spirit, is devoted to the fellowship because of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
writing in his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul comments, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's agape. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In a different context, St. Paul defines love. He defines agape by writing that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not part of a marriage liturgy. This is part of Paul's letter to the church. The koinonia, the fellowship of the church, has got to be, because this is biblical, has got to be marked by love, the fruit of the Spirit. We can only do these things because the Spirit is growing the fruit within us. The church, God's gathered people in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is that babelic kill switch. It puts to death the impulse within us precisely because life in the church is based on the other-centered, self-sacrificing love that is grown by the Spirit of God, Jesus' gift to His church. And because of this, we have to see this. Because of this, the church is then, in a very real sense, a miracle. The very existence of the church is a work of grace. It is supernatural. A number of years ago, author Philip Yancey wrote in Christianity Today, beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Yancey went on to reflect, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants, and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, he says, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find such mixture? The church, God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Spirit, is devoted to the fellowship. And fellowship, the koinonia of the church, is based on common belief in Jesus and is formed around love of another because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But what difference does that make? That's a wonderful question to ask. And by way of application this morning, I'd like for us to consider three aspects of devotion to the fellowship, two that focus internally and one that looks outwardly. When we think about these two points of application that focus sort of internally, how we live together as the church, I'd like for us to hear from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, beginning at the fourth chapter, the first verse. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
There's that word again. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First, as we look at what this means to be in fellowship with one another, with common faith, common life, and common relationship, we hear from Paul's words that we are to bear with one another with patience, with humility, with gentleness, in love. And so we have to talk about the ideas of love and forgiveness. Life in the church can be messy. It can be sometimes painful precisely because of who we are. The church is God's people and Jesus gathered together through the Holy Spirit, but nowhere in Scripture do we find that God's gathered people are perfect beings and sinless. We do have common faith. We do have common life. We do have common relationship, but we can and we do and we will sin against God and against one another. And so the fellowship then in bearing with one another in humility and in peace with patience the fellowship then must be marked by love and forgiveness. It must be marked by the seeking of forgiveness from others, and it must be marked by actively forgiving others in exact accordance with what Jesus proclaimed in Matthew chapter 18. Both as Jesus sets out sort of a protocol for reconciliation in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and then immediately after that in a long parable about an unmerciful or unforgiving servant. The fellowship must be marked by love and forgiveness because Jesus desires it to be that way. Because love is to be the mark of fellowship. Agape, that seeks the other, is willing to sacrifice for the other, to serve the other. It's actually intentionally built into our Anglican liturgy, our, our pattern of worship. Here in just a few moments, uh, we will offer our prayers to God and then we will confess our sins. And after we confess our sins, our, we are reminded of God's promise of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and then we pass the peace. The passing of the peace is more than greeting our friends and visitors. The passing of the peace is more than talking about and uh, commiserating with one another about the ineptness of Willie Taggart and the Florida State Seminoles. <laughs> Listen, I'm right there with you. Oklahoma State Cowboys are terrible this year. The passing of the peace is actually intended for the intentional and specific offering of peace in the name of the Lord to those from whom we need forgiveness and those to whom we should be, we need to forgive. The passing of the peace is of gospel importance, is of koinonia importance, is an expression of love in common faith. So, make a commitment to love and forgive. Second, very practically speaking again, looking inwardly, let's think about the ministry of presence. Again, from Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being devoted to fellowship means common faith, but it also means common life and relationships. It is to be devoted means being present. If you think back to Acts chapter 2, especially verse 47, in that passage, we might get thrown off by what, we, what looks like some kind of weird communist idea that we sell all of our, our goods and we share life in a big commune. That's not what that passage is about. So you know, communism is not a Christian notion anyway. That's a different sermon altogether. But what we really ought to be noticing, what we really ought to be thrown off about is that in verse 47, it says, day by day, they were meeting together in the temple and in their homes. 
How are they building relationship? How are they building koinonia and fellowship? How are they building life together? By being in their presence together, one another. It can be easy for us to think that our attendance in worship is a passive action. It can be easy for us to think that our attendance in worship or at other church events is something that is inconsequential if we are not actively involved. And thus, it can be easy for us to think that we won't be missed if we are absent. But this discounts the greatest gift that we can give to one another. This ignores 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this discounts the simple gift of presence. The ministry of turning up, as one British pastor puts it, is incredibly important for fellowship. We can and we should all be involved in the ministry of just being there. Because people notice others who care. People notice others who care and are caring is often demonstrated in simply giving the gift of time and attention, in giving presence. In the ministry of presence, even without saying a word, we give an amazing gift because we give of ourselves. When we practice the ministry of just showing up, of just being there, we give our time. We give our presence in the fellowship to the fellowship for the fellowship. And so just as I encourage you to make a commitment to love and to forgive, so I, make, I encourage you, make a commitment to build a habit of presence, of coming, of being there, a presence of ministry on Sunday morning worship, of gathering in small groups, of gathering together for service. Love and forgiveness in the ministry of presence. That's how we can build the fellowship. That's how we can come together with common faith, common life, common relationship. Now those two look internally. Those two very practical applications look internally. Let's think a little bit externally. Let's think outwardly. And to do so, I'd like to build a little bit off of last week's application. Loving and forgiving, the ministry of presence, the building of relationship, common life, all of these things work within the church's mission to make disciples. All of these things work to make disciples of those who are not disciples. Here at Emmanuel Church, the Alpha Course and the Gospel Project are two avenues for reaching out to unchurched folks and for discipleship of children, youth, and adults. And these two courses of ministries, they are intentionally built around the creation of relationships, of building fellowship. And here's one reason why. In that study of the millennial generation, David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock learned that only 10% of that generation raised in the church in America could be called resilient disciples as adults. From 1984 to 1998, that group of young people raised in the church, only 10% of them maintained their faith as adults. A significant factor in the lives and faiths of those who remained is multi-generational fellowship. Kinnaman and Matlock report their findings this way. The top relationship predictors of resilient Christians are these. I feel connected to a community of Christians. That's fellowship. The church is a place where I feel I belong. That's fellowship. I feel loved and valued in my church. That's fellowship. I feel connected to people older than me in my church. That's fellowship. And so in their book, Faith for Exiles, written based off of this research, Kinnaman and Matlock state 
The church can help fill a massive gap in our society, the desire to be loved, to be acknowledged for more than what we produce, to be known. They can say this because God's people gathered in Jesus through the Spirit is devoted to the fellowship. They can say this because the church, God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is the fellowship where people can be loved for who they are and not for what they produce. They can say this because the church, God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is the place where others can be known, acknowledged, accepted, all in the name of Jesus through the Spirit. The church, God's people gathered in Jesus through the Spirit, is devoted to the fellowship. The church is the people with common faith in Christ, common life and relationships marked by agape, marked by love. It is the people defined by love and forgiveness, defined by building relationships in order to pass on the faith, evangelistic efforts, and defined by the willing, sharing ministry of presence. The church, God's people, gathered in Jesus through the Spirit, is devoted to the fellowship. This devotion is shown in faith, life, relationship, and love found in action. And folks, this is for our good. The church is for our good. The fellowship is for our good. And more than that, the fellowship is for God's greater glory. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks for Jesus and life together in his name. As we consider the words of Scripture, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do what only you can do. Wield this two-edged sword, the word of God. Cut and convict where we must be cut and convicted. Heal and build up where we must be healed and built. And do this for our good, yes, but do this for God's greater glory. Come and be at work here in Emmanuel Church as we grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus Christ and our devotion to the fellowship and to one another. Come and be at work in your church, universal. Come and magnify the name of Christ. Build us in fellowship and unity, all for his glory, all for his kingdom's sake, all for his proclamation, his majesty, and his excellency. Come and do the work. We pray we are desperate for you, Holy Spirit, come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and offer our worship through song to the Lord.